Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Kent City Baptist Church. If you're new, I'm not the regular guy. Actually, it's been about three years since I've had the opportunity to stand behind this podium and share God's Word. I was just finishing up my seminary studies at that time, seeking God's leading and hand in what we were going to do next. And over the last three years, we've had some water under the bridge. But uh, it's good to be back here. And it's kind of neat to see the place more full in first service. Is Arnie here? Arnie wore a suit today, and I said to him, I did first service, you get second. So he ducked out, so you didn't get to see him. So Arnie was really looking good today. Well, about a month ago, I got a call from Pastor Derek, and he was actually up in the rotation. Pastor Chris and Ken are out of town for the holidays, and he had family over, so he emailed me at four different addresses and said, help, pulp supply. And so I said, yep, I will jump in and do it. They gave me the topic of Christians in the holidays, which is a topic rather than an exegetical sermon that I normally preach, where you have a, a passage of Scripture to use as the backbone of your sermon. This you kind of weave it or you salt it in, so it's a little different than I normally do, but I've kind of had fun with this right here. And i got to admit that it kind of wrote itself. Sometimes you wrestle through writing a sermon. This one just kind of took off, and I just prayed through it, so I hope it's a blessing to you as well. I'm also going to kind of weave in some of the techniques and the things that our pastors have shared over the last month as they did a sermon series on biblical interpretation. So got some things going on here. So if you'd bow your heads and pray with me, we'll ask God's blessing upon this message in this service. Our Heavenly Father, first of all, we just thank you for the holidays. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together with family and friends and to enjoy the bounty of this world. And we just thank you, Lord, that you brought us here this morning. Lord, I invite your Holy Spirit in to be central in this service. Nothing will be accomplished if you're not here working on the ears and my mouth so that it would be connected together. And Lord, that you would be honored and praised in the midst, that they would not see me, but they would see you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's not news that we just finished having our Thanksgiving annual celebration this past Thursday. And Thanksgiving is kind of a gray area between a purely secular celebration like the 4th of July, which has really no bearing upon religion, and a pretty much purely religious celebration like Easter. And the reason it's kind of great is the way that it developed. And if you remember back to your elementary school days, you probably learned about the history of Thanksgiving, that back in 1621, the pilgrims who had come to the New World, and many of them perished that first year. They got here and they were unprepared, and the winters were harder than they thought, and they died. And the ones that survived learned and they had to adapt. And they had a good year of planting and crops and success. And they said, this did not happen on our own. So they wanted to thank God for their bounty, for the provision that he had provided them. And they invited their neighbors and the neighboring Indian tribes, which we would call Native Americans in our politically correct world, to have this three-day celebration starting on December the 13th for the bounty of the new land and all that they had been given to them. Now, that was really the first Thanksgiving festival, but if you really wanted to dig back, there were other communities that had their own celebration, but this is really the main one. And it was done like this sporadically for the next 150 years until George Washington took over as our president, and he was an active member of the Episcopal Church. He was a Christian man, and he said, we need to thank God again, 
and he tried to enact it, but it really didn't take off. It became at the state level, and areas did that. And it continued on that way for the next 100 years or so until Abraham Lincoln in 1863 declared a national day of thanks to God on the last Thursday of November. And that began the tradition that we celebrate today. Now, Abraham Lincoln was a known Christian, but he was not a Christian at that point until he got to Gettysburg. And he has a really neat testimony, if you want to go back and look at it, that he went there and he was deeply moved and the Spirit of God changed him. And it shows the importance of Christian leadership. That leaders without that always look at the horizontal level. They look inside or they look outside, but they don't look upward on that vertical level of thanking God and acknowledging God in the creation of this world and the sustaining providence of this world. And so just as a, as a thought for the elections as we see things happening, that Christian leaders are vital to our world. Now there's a very sound scriptural basis for acknowledging the hand of God. If you take your Bibles and start turning over to Psalms 107, last week when Pastor Chris preached on Thanksgiving, he wove in several psalms, and I sat there listening to his sermon going, please don't use 107. I've already got this written into my sermon. I've got my PowerPoint ready to go, and he didn't, thankfully. So in Psalms 107, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 as kind of a jump-off point here of what the psalmists say about thanksgiving. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look at the connection between love and thankfulness. That if you have love in your heart, you are thankful. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those who he has redeemed from trouble, those who he bought back from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and the south. Some wandered in desert ways, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. The pilgrims could relate with this because that first year, as I said, many died. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord, again, thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Not only did this resonate with the pilgrims, and the Puritans who came here because of religious oppression. But this also was the story of the nation of Israel, where they went to Egypt and they became slaves and God freed them. And then they went out and they went through the book of Judges and they had these constant cycles of getting in trouble and God delivering them, redeeming them. And this Psalms does it so well. Scholars say that Psalms 107 was very likely a call to worship of one of Israel's national celebrations, one of their festivals. Sadly, today, Thanksgiving does not carry the same meaning for so many in America. They've turned it into Turkey Day. Have you seen that? Have you heard people talk about it that way? I just saw it on the internet yesterday. A guy said, I went hunting on Turkey Day. And that kind of makes me cringe. Yeah, we eat turkey, but turkey is not the central thing. Neither is football. Neither is shopping, a lead up to Black Friday. The new outlet mall store was open all Thursday. So several of the big stores. Joni and I, when we were on our way to her mom's to have Thanksgiving dinner, went by Myers, and the parking lot was full and all those employees were working instead of having the day off. 
Because what happens is our culture is now so focused on consumerism, about buying and getting and filling up our houses and getting stuff, that it's no longer thankfulness to God. It's been lost. And what happens is that consumerism breeds an attitude of entitlement, that we deserve it. We're owed it simply because we exist. Blessing and convenience are owed to us by God. And what happens is we become the fulfillment of what Paul says in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Over in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, Paul warns, sadly, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Paul was a motive over this. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. And doesn't that sound like it could be written about today in our culture? And this is not the way to celebrate. So that begs the question then, how should we and what should we celebrate as Christians? What is our purpose and pattern in this? And I'm going to borrow from Pastor Jared's sermon that he masterfully did a few weeks ago. He did a great job of this. He gave us this illustration of how to get and to go into Scripture, because that should be the basis of where we go to get our foundations, that when we go back into the Old Testament and look at the things that they did, that they had their town. There was a river of divide, of cultural divide. He said it's like the center aisle, and there's a bridge over it, and then there is our town. That was the model that he used for interpretation. I thought that was really good. He and I went to the same seminary. I'm done. He's not. He's still working at it, so pray for him. A lot of work there with a wife and kids. But he put it in a really practical purposes in, in usage here. And what we have here is the idea of their town is the people that received the word directly or who wrote, got the instructions, the letters from the apostles, it was about them, and they lived in a specific time and place. And where I put this kind of thinking about it into my mind is that this past summer, my wife and I, my wife Joni and I, our daughter Ann and her, and her husband Dave, we took our dogs up to Mackinac City, and we went to the fort. Has anybody been to the fort there in Mackinac City? Ever been there? Yeah, kind of nerdy thing. And what they had as we went through there, it's the first time I'd been there since I was just a little kid, and it was kind of fun. They had an archaeological dig, a big rectangle that was dug down, and they had people working on it. And they had ropes gridded off, and each person had their own little box, little rectangle. And they went in there with a little shovel, and they would have a screen. And what they would do is they would take each shovel full and put it through the screen to see what was there that had sunk down from the last 100, 200, 250 years and they were looking for beads and buttons and trinkets and bullets and all kinds of things like that. But they sifted out the soil. And I thought that is a really good word picture of what we're supposed to do. When we read the Old Testament, there are certain things that we sift out, but we don't necessarily take the soil with us because there is a divide, the river between their time and ours. And we have people today who want to go backwards and become Israelites. You, people who let their hair grow and their beards grow and they wear robes and they eat the Jewish um, diet and things like that and they think there's something special about that, but that was not our time. So that's the divide. But we do take certain things across, the things that we sift out. Those are the kind of things, the truths, the principles of Scripture, the concepts that are timeless. 
the changeless nature of God, his character, his grace, his love, the sinfulness of mankind, the depravity from the fall on that we carry over the bridge, sadly. The challenges of life that we're going to have along this way, that it's not going to be easy, we bring across the bridge because it carries over, it's timeless. And also the fact that Christ is the answer for the reason for our faith and our hope. And finally, there's our town. Our town is 21st century. We are not in 1621. We're not wearing those funky black hats and, like the pilgrims did. We're not even 60 years ago when a lot of people think was the golden age of Christianity in America. We're not there anymore. That's still there. We are here. And in order for the church to be relevant to our young people, we have to continue to modify our process without changing the word. That is the our town part of this. So the question is then, if that's keeping that model in mind, are those Old Testament, their town festivals and celebrations, are those ours? Do we own those right there? And what I did, can flip the slide? Okay. And what I've got right up here is a calendar year of the, all the different feasts that they celebrated right there. And there's a verse up there from Romans chapter 11. And this, this passage that Paul wrote in Romans 11 talked about the nation of Israel was represented by a cultivated olive tree. And it says some branches were broken off because of unbelief and some were grafted in. And I looked at this website from this man who was a Messianic Jew. He was Jewish by heritage, by nationality, but he became a believer in Yeshua, Jesus. So he was a Messianic Jew. And he said, for all practical purposes, you leave that stuff behind you because you've crossed over the bridge into the new covenant. He was urging those Messianic Jews that they didn't even have to follow that. So why would we? Why would we as Gentiles, why would we do that? So if the Old Testament festivals are not ours, what does the New Testament say about way that we should celebrate? Well, if you've read through it, and many of you have, you'll notice it's kind of silent on some things. What it does say in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul again says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. You can see the light here that my body casts a shadow. It's a rough outline of my image, but I am the substance. And what Paul is saying there is all these festivals and things that they did in their town on the other side of the bridge, they were the shadow. Christ is the substance, and don't get hung up on that. That's exactly what he was talking about in the book of Galatians when these Judaizers who said, okay, Gentiles, you're over here and you got Jesus, now let's mark across the bridge, come on over here, and now you have to be good Jews on top of it. And Paul said, no, that is not the case. We're on the other side of the bridge in the new covenant right there. Likewise, in Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, he says, one man considers one more day sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And what this does is opens up for something called Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And that means that people can have different views 
of theological issues and still be okay. One person can consider every day to be the same. Other people have high points. That is okay. As long as the focus is God. Because he goes on to say, the key is that he does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. If we take our eyes and make it about us, you do things different, so you're wrong. No. What he's saying is that you can be brothers in Christ and do things differently. But it still doesn't say a whole lot about what we're supposed to do. So what about the life of Jesus? What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus was born in the their town side of the bridge, and he lived as a Jew and did those kind of things. And so his life offers us really two things that we bring across. Number one, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me about communion, the Lord's Supper. That is one of the ordinances, and that is a celebration of the church that we celebrate together. The other ordinance that we celebrate as evangelicals is baptism. Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, and that is also an ordinance that we celebrate together. Kent City Baptist Church in the fall time goes out to the lake. We have a, a picnic, and then we baptize people, and it is really a festival atmosphere. And so there are two main things that we do, and that's it. Well, what about these other things? Where do these other practices come from? What about celebrating Jesus' birth? Well, if you notice, the Bible is really silent about that, and mainly because the Jews did not celebrate birthdays the way that we think of them. When you see birthdays in the Bible, it relates to pagans, like Pharaoh celebrating his birthday because there was superstition and magic tied up with this whole idea of celebrating birthdays. And so we do not know when Adam was created from the dust of the earth. We don't know when Eve was taken from his rib and made into the second person. We don't know when Noah was born. We don't know when Abraham was born. And we don't know when David and Solomon and the prophets, even Jesus, we don't have a, a firm date on that simply because they focused on the life of the person and not just the beginning. So where did this come from? Where did this idea of celebrating Jesus' birth come from? Well, this is where it might get uncomfortable for a few of you because we're going to take some sacred rocks and we're going to turn them over and we're going to look at the worms and the bugs that are underneath them because that's really what it's about. This is an oddly mixed holiday. And the truth of the matter is the history and the roots of Christmas is basically secular. The Romans were the dominant culture of that era. And they had two main festivals at this time of year. The first one was to the sun god Mithra, or Mithras. And this is really, really disconcerting. If you do your research, if you want to go back and look at this, Mithras was the sun god. And what happened was his birthday was December 25th. And there was a whole mythology built around him. And when you start to look at it, what you start to realize is this is eerily like the life of Christ. And it was almost like Satan had read through the Old Testament, looked at the prophecies, and was kind of predicting what might happen. And it was very similar to what happened because Jesus was going to fulfill them. And they mixed it all up and intertwined it all together. Another festival that they did right around the time of the winter solstice was Saturnalia. And that was one of a typical Roman feasts where they had um, overeating and sexual misuse and human sacrifice and all kinds of weird stuff. 
So the Romans were not the model of this. But over in Europe, in Northern Europe, the Scandinavians had their own practices built on the Norse gods, and they had something called the Yule Log. Familiar with the Yule Log? Ever anybody turn on the Yule Log on Christmas morning and see it kind of burning? The Yule Log, they believed, had magical properties that every spark that came out was predicting the birth of a goat or a sheep their following spring. What? Have you ever heard that? And then you've got, yeah, you're going, what is this? Right, of course you didn't, because we sanitized it. And then you've got the Germanic tribes in Middle Europe, and they brought pine boughs and trees into their houses because they believed it showed fertility and the greenness of the coming spring. So we've got all this stuff all wound together here. How did church get into it? Well, in the 4th century, Emperor Constantine, the first Roman who became a Christian and had influence, started changing the culture there, and the church got rolling formally. And one of the first popes, Pope Julius, said, we need to do something about this. We need a wholesome alternative to all these pagan festivals and things like that. So he came up with a celebration of the birth of Christ, and he put it exactly December 25th, which was the birthday of Mithra. Okay? So already from the start, it had a shaky start. It muddied the waters. From a pragmatic stance, it made sense because it was giving Christians a cleaner version, a better version of where to go, where to, to celebrate, how to go about this. But it didn't last very long. It got all mixed up. And theologians use a term called syncretism that tells you what this is. Syncretism is taking pagan and Christian beliefs and muddling all up together. An example of this would be Gnosticism. If you read about the Gnostics in the New Testament, Paul talked about them, and John wrote 1 John about them. They were this knowledge cult that followed Plato and, and all this information that they wanted to gather, and they blended in some Christianity, and they made this hodgepodge of it. And both of these apostles said, no, this is bad. Modern day, there's something called Santeria, which is practiced in the Caribbean and Haiti, where they take... Western African pagan beliefs and they tie it in with Roman Catholicism and you know on your radar that this does not sound right, correct? I don't have to tell you that this does not sound like it's the way you should go about it. But somehow we have taken these pagan beliefs and brought them into Christmas and kind of trimmed off the edges and called it okay. Then we add in this odd character called Santa Claus. Now, the Dutch influence is strong in West Michigan. And sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Some of you have Dutch blood in you. Some of you deal with Dutch people and they tell you not to mow your lawn on Sunday and things like that. But talk to your Dutch friends about Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas is the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas. And they're the ones that help perpetuate this myth. Because what happens is St. Nicholas excuse me, St. Nicholas, pictured up there in the upper left, was a third century Roman Catholic saint who was known for his generosity and his kindness. And what they did is they took, and over time, as things embellish and grow, he turned into this jolly old elf pipe smoking, and then he turned into our modern Santa Claus with the riding on the sleigh and all what fun it is to ride and that kind of stuff. And then he gets minions, Minions, agents, called the elf on the shelf. 
Listen to the words of this song right here. And I want you to notice that on Christian radio like WCSG, there are certain songs they don't play. And on things like 105.7, The River, they play all the Christmas songs. Why are they, some of them, filtered out? I'll tell you why. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, that's not so bad. It's telling the kids, shape up, be good. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Not so bad. Kind of second verse, same as the first. It's when we get to the third verse here that gets kind of weird. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And it's a little bit funny, but it's also a little bit scary because what happens is that it's crossing a line right here because something known as the attributes of God tell us that God has characteristics in his nature that is different than any other being in this universe. God is omnipresent. He's the only one who can be everywhere at once. He's omniscient. God is the only one unknown. That's all-knowing, not Santa Claus. And we see the miracle on 34th Street in the middle of this trial, and they pull out a coin and they're saying, God, we trust. And somehow they blend this mythology of Santa Claus into who's God, and is he, is he an angel? Does he work for God? Is he kind of a, a, a demigod? Well, just exactly who is he? And then going back to the elf on the shelf. How many of you know about the elf on the shelf? Okay, probably the younger people. I, I didn't learn about it until the last couple of years. Apparently it's been around since about 2005 or 2006. And the idea is there, and it's a great marketing ploy. They made all these dolls that all have to look the same. And they sold a whole lot of them. You put them up on the shelf, and they're supposed to be watching. They're sort of like Santa's video eyes. And I read an essay about this online about a father who said how the elf on the shelf ruined our Christmas. And he had two young kids. He had a daughter about six years old, and she bought a hook, line, and sinker. And when it got to be Christmas Eve and the elf had to go away because Santa had to come and be gone, she cried and cried and cried because the elf, because she loved the elf. And so they thought, well, she'll sleep it off. She got up Christmas morning, and she was still distraught. So they finally got the doll out and gave it to her and said, okay, look, you know, sorry, this was all made up. And then she cried because her parents had lied to her. And the guy says it got worse and worse and worse. He said this was terrible. He said this whole mythology that they brought into their house was just weird. So is this stuff helpful? Or are these stories harmful? Am I just a middle-aged Grinch who kind of lost it? Did I lose my silver bell like it says in the Polar Express? Do I not hear the magic anymore? And i got to admit to you, and I talked to a couple people this morning who said the same thing, I didn't believe in it very long because I grew up in a conservative Baptist church that had Christmas morning service at 10 a.m. We never opened presents on Christmas morning. It was always Christmas Eve. And it didn't take me until about five years old before I figured out that this doesn't work, that Santa didn't just come to my house early. Okay, It didn't work that way. And so... I figured it out, and I was kind of bummed. I felt like I got robbed. You know, as I was growing up, I thought, I would like just one Sunday morning that we could take off, or Christmas morning that we could take off and open our presents, but it didn't happen. But you know what? It also gave me a dose of reality of understanding what the nature of things are. Are there hidden dangers to perpetuating these stories? 
Pastor Chris, when he preached about the biblical interpretation, he said that there were four ways that people commonly twist Scripture. Do you remember that? And he said the worst one of them all was sentimentalism. Choosing emotion over truth because it makes you feel good. It's warm and fuzzy. And he quoted from the Miracle on 34th Street again, a lie that draws a smile is always better than a truth that draws a tear. And doesn't that sound great, but is that what we want to do? Do we want to raise our kids on white lies because they're fun? Or am I just the Grinch here? So what's at stake? What's at stake with this? About 15 years ago or so, I went to Promise Keepers, and there are men in here who were with me at there. And there was a sermon preached called The Three Chairs. That's why the three stools are here. Pastor Bruce Wilkinson preached this sermon, and it was powerful to me as a young father then. And what he said was chair number one, he used the example of Abraham. Abraham was called out of paganism. And Abraham had a lot of lessons to learn. He had a lot of tests to take, and he failed some miserably. But God was building character in him. So when he finally got to the final test, and God said, take the son of promise, your only son, that was just a train wreck to get Isaac there. He said, take him out and sacrifice him to me. Abraham didn't hesitate. Abraham had the knife poised, ready to go, and God stopped him because he didn't want him to kill him. But he wanted to know that the character was built, the man of faith was ready. And Isaac, in the second chair, he saw that. He experienced it. He was the one that was bound, waiting for his father to plunge the knife into him. And he was oppressed by that. And he knew that, and he drew off from his father's faith, and he lived a good, solid life. He got a, a, a believing wife, and things were going well. But what happened is when they had children, they had two sons, and his wife introduced favoritism into their home. And that favoritism poisoned their sons, Jacob and Esau. And they duped Isaac. And Jacob grew up under this mentality of whatever goes, goes. And then we have Jacob. Jacob was a first-class manipulator. Jacob was an ends-justifies-the-means kind of guy. Jacob was a weasel. He thought he could get away with anything. He was a wily coyote, trying to always capture the, the, the roadrunner any way he could. And God had to discipline him and beat some of it out of him, dislocating his hip in the process before he became Israel. And the point here is that Jacob learned it at home. Instead of listening and looking to his grandfather and to his father, he learned the bad lessons. And he had to have that taken out of him. And the core of this message was we have to be careful what we teach at home. The necessity of discretion and wisdom in what we teach. See, the parents might be strong believers who can reason this out and they just bring in a little bit of this stuff because it's fun. But the kids grow up seeing it, and they don't have the filter, the discernment. And then they have kids, and what do they believe? And then all of a sudden they find out the elf in the shelf isn't real. And then are those Bible stories real? Is the Bible real? Is Jesus real? You can't see Him. Is this all just made up? Is it just a myth? We have to be careful with that. As I'm wrapping up this morning, I want to close with a reality check of modern Christmas. 
with all of this in the background right here, I was recently driving home from being bow hunting on a Saturday morning, and I flicked on the radio, and since my bride listens to Christmas music year-round, and especially so after Halloween, I flicked on the radio, and I heard another Christmas song that will be familiar to you. City sidewalks, busy sidewalks dressed in holiday style. If you've driven through downtown Sparta or Rockford, they've got the trees up, especially last weekend when the snow was falling, and it's in the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. Children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile. And on every street corner you'll hear, silver bells, silver bells, it's Christmas time in the city. And doesn't that sound like a Hallmark movie? It sounds just like a way it's supposed to be, right? Everybody's happy and greeting, hi, neighbor. The problem is the Hallmark movies are the way it should be, and my wife loves those, and I love her for it, and we watch those. But you know what? It isn't the way real people are. It doesn't have to be the Terminator either, but there's somewhere along the line there's real life, right? But what happens is that you watch the news and you see people lined up with their shopping carts at the door of Walmart ready to run over anybody in their way. You see ladies pulling their hair and swearing at each other. You see men in fistfights by who got the electronics item first. And what happens is instead of it being people laughing and smiling, real life is sometimes kind of ugly, the way Christmas is celebrated. And then there's this whole idea of tension and stress that comes with the holidays. If you get online and Google holiday stress, you'll see all kinds of it. You see, stress is dessert spelled backwards. Did you know that? Because what happens is that so much of this stress honestly falls on the ladies. Guys work, they bring home the bacon, and then what happens is they leave the rest of it. And what you have here is the ladies who are dealing with filling gift lists and expectations, not disappointing everyone, making sure that the, the toy of the year is underneath the tree and not a substitute, not some cheap brand. They bear the burden. I've seen it with my mom. I grew up in a family of women. I had four sisters. And I've even seen my wife stressed out a couple days before Christmas when, what do we get brother-in-law Steve? You know, what do we get so-and-so? Because... They don't really need anything, and, and you, you're looking for that. Have you been there? And this, this tension, this stress going on, and then, of course, the cooking and the baking right beforehand. And it puts a lot of pressure on ladies. Pastor Chris pointed this out. I made sure on Thanksgiving I helped out. Maybe it guilted me into it, but I thought, you know what? I don't want them to support this. We have to get involved, guys. This is not just a ladies' holiday. But what happens is with this burden of expectations, it flies in the face of what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Paul says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, there it is again, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, isn't that one of the watchwords of this holiday season, is peace? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Isn't that where stress comes from? You feel like you're going to have a heart attack. Your brain is coming out your ears. You know the pictures of that? Look at that lady sitting there. She is the, I found that picture and I thought, if that doesn't sum it all up, sitting there going, oh, I need two Tylenol. Because what happens is that weight of it goes on like that, and that is not 
what we're supposed to be like ever. Because when we take on the ways of the world, even temporarily, even during the holiday season, what happens is we give up that quietness, that communion of spirit with God, our close walk, and we pick up busyness and stress. And it leaves people burned out. And you talk to ladies about two weeks before Christmas, and they go, I just can't wait till it's over. I can't wait till it's over. That is not the way the season should be. But it's because of the pressure and the tension. I read a Proverbs every day. read a week ago, Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A lot of wisdom, isn't there? Because how many of you have been, and I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you have been at a family feast where strife either came in or left? And it, what Solomon is saying here is it's better to go eat some crackers up in the dining room than be in this atmosphere with the stress. So in closing, rather than focus on giftless and shopping, the elf on the shelf, the merry old elf, these traditions with a questionable history. There's a continuum of fair to good to better to best. And my recommendation is you choose the best. Don't settle. Don't look for moments of warm fuzzies. Look for things built around Christ like Advent, the coming, the promise, the fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it's all about. It's not about a certain day. It's about an influence of Jesus in our hearts. Celebrate it as a family. Celebrate it as a church. Look for places that you can invest. Pastor Ken last week told us about a couple things, that, a couple projects that our church has taken on. One of them in particular, Trevor Miller and his family are missionary to Brazil, haven't been home in two years. They're flying home. They could use some help. It'd be a great way to invest. There's even things outside of the church like Angel Tree and Toys for Tots, those kind of things where you're helping others and it isn't so inward focused. Because in summation, the spirit of Christmas is not Santa. It's not Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. The spirit of Christmas is Jesus Christ. Hang on to that. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the reality of your word. And Lord, it challenges us. It challenges us to get out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it challenges us to challenge the, the beliefs of our system, of our culture, to not be immersed in it. And Lord, that doesn't mean we have to go throw our Christmas trees away, or it does not mean that we can't decorate, and it can't, doesn't mean we can't celebrate. But it means that we keep you at the center of everything that we do. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to be thankful. Help us to acknowledge your love that's the center of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.